welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 1st, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm happy to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, which issues each Friday and features commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics regarding salient appellate issues. Today we'll hear four terrific guests consider two cases, one, a momentous case filed out of the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday that struck down Texas provisions that restricted abortion access. The other is a pair of related class actions against rideshare giant Uber, which heard oral arguments in the Ninth Circuit in June. First, Eileen Boris, a professor in the Department of Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, will visit to discuss an amicus brief she helped prepare in support of petitioners in the abortion rights case, Whole Woman's Health First Hellerstedt. In that case, plaintiffs challenged a Texas law, House Bill 2, that contained provisions requiring certain things of abortion providers. The provisions were ostensibly passed to improve the medical care tendered to those seeking abortions, but the measures were of dubious medical benefit and also had the potential to effectively shutter all but a handful of Texas's clinics, rendering abortion access within the state quite tenuous. Professor Boris's brief considers the historical antecedents of House Bill 2 and looks back centuries to regard English common law doctrines and, more recently, American labor law restrictions that were passed professedly to protect women while having the effect of depriving them of legal rights and equal citizenship. The brief describes how House Bill 2 is the latest issue of this paternalistic legal genealogy and should be regarded skeptically. Indeed, such skepticism is manifest in the court's 5-3 opinion, which our second guest, Darlin Dury, a co-founder of the San Francisco firm Dury Tangri, will help us dissect. Ms. Dury was the counsel of record for a separate amicus brief filed in support of petitioners. Finally, Petter Patalden and Felix Shafir, partners at Horvitz and Levy, will join me to consider recent oral arguments and class action suits brought against Uber, which raise arbitration issues, the resolutions of which stand to have enormous impacts for Uber and for other employers in the burgeoning gig economy. Before hearing from our guests, let me first remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to the show. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Professor Boris. We're very happy to welcome now Professor Eileen Boris from the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she is a member of the Department of Feminist Studies there and teaches courses in subject matters like labor, gender, race, class, women's history, and social politics. Professor Boris, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. So you were part of a amicus brief that was filed on behalf of petitioners in the case that we're discussing here, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. The opinion in this case was filed on Monday out of the Supreme Court, and the case regarded a couple of provisions in a Texas statute, House Bill 2. Those provisions were purportedly meant to protect the health of women in the state, but had the effect of significantly curtailing abortion access in Texas. And so your brief it takes a bit of a unique perspective. It, it sort of sets House Bill 2 in a historical context and describes it as the most recent iteration, perhaps of a very long-standing pattern, whereby legislatures will pass laws purportedly for the protection of women, but then thereby causing some significant harms to, to women. Could you tell me a bit more about the, the overall goal of this brief and its uh, historical methodology? Sure. The goal of the brief was to provide a historical context on the complexity of protection claims, to show that stereotypical notions of women's dependency and inability to act rationally shaped laws that led to what uh, Justice Brennan, in a famous case, Frontero versus Richardson, called romantic paternalism. As Justice Brennan put it back in 1973, our nation has a long and unfortunate history of sex discrimination rationalized by an attitude of romantic paternalism which, in practical effect, puts women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. That is, claims of protection, we argue, uh, require careful scrutiny for interfering with liberty and equality for women, because laws that purport to protect women from harm often have the consequence of actually excluding women from uh, the full life of equality as, as citizens. Okay, then we'll dive into some specifics. Your brief goes back several centuries and, and first touches on the legal doctrine of, of coverture, which has the effects that you're describing. Could you tell me a bit about what coverture is? Uh, I believe in, it arose in English common law. 
Right, from Blackstone's famous commentaries on the laws of England of 1765. And to our modern ears, it might sound incredible, but this is what he wrote. And, And it's important to understand that Blackstone and other English commentators were incorporated into the laws of the new nation. So back in 1765, he wrote, by marriage, the husband and wife are one person in law. That is, the very being of or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, under whose wing, protection, and cover she performs everything. And actually, in the original, cover is italicized or underlined in some way. And what did that really mean? That means man and wife are one and that one is him, and he gets to call the shots. Uh, and that's a great impact on women from everything from managing property and money, making contracts, taking uh, any kind of legal action as suing, uh, making decisions uh, where they would live, decisions about their children. It was used not only to have one head of household to represent the the family seen as a unit, but to rationalize for depriving women of the vote, to hold office, to sit on juries. And so the consequences of, say, of saying that women are like minors without their own legal personality was to create a lesser citizenship. You suggest there in the brief mentions that the legacy of coverture extended within American law for a long time. In the time. 70s, uh, really. Uh, and we see it uh, in not only the notion of taxation without representation, which impacted even uh, single women who could own property, but uh, the question of not having jury of one's peers, for example. Uh, women were limited uh, and for jury service. In some states, women uh, were fully barred. In other states, they had to sign up. In as late as Hoyt versus Florida of 1961, the court is essentially saying, "Well, women are homemakers. They're, they should you know, remain in the family. They might hear things that a proper woman shouldn't hear, and such." Uh, another legacy, of course, was credit. Uh, women could not get equal credit to men, and this included uh, single women. Many banks required women who were single, divorced, or widowed to bring a man along with them to co-sign for a credit card. Some banks and credit card companies had discounted women's wages uh, when they were calculating credit card limits. And it took the 1974 Equal Credit Opportunity Act for women to begin to get equality in that, uh, in that arena of public life. The one area where this um, romantic paternalism seems to really have persisted is in military service. Sure. And right now we're just um, still debating whether women should be in combat in, sure. in various uh, regulations that are uh, being presented. So there was a persistence outside of just labor legislation or family law. Right. Yeah, labor law, in the brief, there's a fair amount of detail discussing gender-specific protectionist statutes in the context of labor law. Could you elaborate on some of those? It's a complex area in the late 19th century, the way in which the 14th Amendment got interpreted. We had this notion of right to contract, and that applied to male workers. But uh, the lawyers and the progressive lawyers of that day went to what they are as the police power of the state to try to rationale protections for women workers because they couldn't get the protections for men because of this notion of right to contract because women were seen as dependent. And at that time, it was thought that these protective laws, particularly maximum hour and minimum wage laws, occupational health and safety laws, would be an entering wedge to labor law and labor standards that would cover all workers. But, of course, it was more complex than that. Uh, While some women in women-dominated industries benefited from minimum wage and maximum hour laws, women uh, who were competing with men in uh, other industries, in fact, suffered from discrimination and were relegated to lower-paid work. 
also other women, and women who might have needed uh, some help in terms of fighting unbridled uh, exploitation, agricultural workers, domestic workers who were predominantly African-American at the time, weren't even included in these laws, which gives you another dimension in considering them historically. In the 1930s, in fact, this entering wedge manifested itself when we got the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, which covered men and women. But as part of that, though, was uh, overtime. The formulators of uh, Fair Labor Standards wanted to use time-and-a-half rules for overtime as a way to discourage the uh, extra hours that women and men found interfering with citizenship and home life and having the old labor uh, notion of eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. Well, if people had to work 12, 15-hour days, they didn't have the rest of the eight hours for what we will, which included um, citizenship activities. Uh, But what happened with this time and a half is that employers responded with mandatory overtime. But women in the states, which still had these uh, maximum hour laws, found themselves excluded from overtime and thus often excluded from even jobs that would require overtime or were on the track for promotion for overtime. So what seemed to be, in one historical moment, a positive for some women turned into a negative from for most uh, women, because in the early post-war period, uh, many states still had these single-sex maximum hour laws. You hinted at it a bit in the answer there that as regards the, the purpose of some of these statutes, some may in fact be good faith attempts to protect, in this context, labor conditions for women. Others might be more insidious motivations to protect men from competition from women. But as the brief argues, and as I believe you know, courts have sort of come to realize in the last generation or so, the purpose doesn't necessarily matter that much at all. It's, it's the, the effect that a statute might have if, if it does negatively influence women, even if it, even if it was born of a good faith intent, that, that's not enough to save it. And I, I believe that's sort of where the court comes down here on Monday mm-hmm. with regard to HB2, right? Right, right. Uh, and we really see a shift beginning in the 1960s and into the 1970s from these police power arguments holding sway to equal protection and due process arguments. And so this, this kind of shift to an equality standard. And once you have that standard, then you really have to scrutinize whether a claim for protection really ends up in these disadvantages in terms of women's equality and liberty and full citizenship. One of the other significant negatives with laws like this, the brief cites, is that in addition to perhaps depriving one gender of certain rights and opportunities, it it also will have the effect of of ratifying or validating gender stereotypes and and thereby perpetuating them. That's right. Uh, The the assumption is that women are weaker, uh, that women just think of getting their pin money, that women can't make important life decisions, and that all women are the same. And in fact, we know from scientific evidence that there's great variations on those people who are born female and those people who are born male, and that some women can lift heavy objects and some men can't. But those stereotypes persist. Among those restrictive laws that really exhibited stereotypes was one were those that restricted women from being bartenders. There was a particularly notorious case coming out of Michigan, a Michigan law in the uh, late 40s, which restricted women working as bartenders to the wives and daughters of the owners of bars. And this was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1948, and the, uh, the notion of the law was to protect women from the dangers in bars. But there was no restriction on women working in lower-paid jobs as waitresses in the same establishments. So we see how um, stereotypical notions of the male protector uh, actually curbed female bar owners' competition against male bar owners and relegated women to even less safe 
if you're if you're buying that on realms of morality, working as the waitress rather than behind the bar, and lower paid work. Okay. Well, then now the provisions of HB two have fallen under the weight of this Supreme Court opinion. But are there other areas in American law still where this hint of paternalism exists? I know you mentioned military service. Are there other ones? Well, it's sometimes less the law per se and how it's implemented or how it's gotten around. And so we recently had the case on the UPS uh, worker whose pregnancy was not accommodated sure. in the same way as other workers who needed accommodation. So it's all, And this is the ways in which some of these stereotypes uh, that somehow women who get pregnant will take advantage of pregnancy leave or disability leave and never come back. And we can see how that goes into calculations. Or stereotypes of what it is to be female. Uh, the burden of proof in terms of dress codes, for example, I think it was the Jepson decision of a few years ago, were on the female, not on the employer, for example. Uh, and so we have these stereotypes of what it is to be a woman and what it is to be a man. I think one area that, uh, is on uh, sexual orientation and gender performance uh, that uh, the various equal opportunities laws are now beginning to explore about the stereotypical notions of what is what makes a woman and what makes a man and the way in which gender nonconforming people and LBGTQ people uh, what are their rights under these laws? So that's one area that we see for the future. Okay. Well, so it sounds like there's still a ways to go in this area, but it, it sounds like we've come a long way from the uh, the age of coverture, yeah. at least. So, so that's good. Well, we, we certainly have. We've come a long way in terms of the equality standard. But as a historian, I have to note that all of these uh, laws existed in particular time periods. We had transformation from protection to single-sex protection to equality in standards in the 1960s because of the rising labor force participation of married women, because of technological changes, because of restructuring of the workplace. Today, in a service society with new technological in the digital age, with offshoring, with the end of the employer-employee uh, relationship in many areas of, the, of work, with um, gestational surrogacy and you know, new kinds of uh, reproduction and, and varieties of different kinds of families, the question will be, is, will equality be enough in the future as, uh, as it seems to be so central to our lives in the immediate past? Okay, well, we'll, we'll leave it there and, and wait and find out. Professor, thanks very much for being on the show, and, and congratulations again on being among the prevailing Amici here. Yeah, we're very thrilled. Thank you. Once again, that was Professor Eileen Boris from UCSB, providing a bit of historical background on laws like House Bill 2. Now we'll hear from Daryl and Dury of Dury Tangri to give us a bit more legal analysis of the opinion filed Monday in Whole Woman's Health First Hellerstedt. We're happy to welcome now Ms. Daryl and Dury from the firm Dury Tangri in San Francisco. Ms. Dury was part of a team that authored an amicus brief on behalf of the petitioners in this case and is kind enough to join us. Ms. Dury, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. We just heard from Professor Eileen Boris of UCSB, who helped pen a, a different amicus brief. And in that brief, she laid out the historical antecedents to, to House Bill 2, the provisions of which are obviously at issue in this case here. And those, those laws prior were the ones that purported to protect the health and well-being of women, but had the result of infringing constitutional rights of women. So could you please lay out for me specifically what exactly the provisions were here in, in House Bill 2 that were challenged? Sure. There were two provisions that were at issue. One required any physician who was providing abortion services to have admitting privileges in a hospital that was within 30 miles. 
And the purported justification for that was that it would allow that physician to have easy access to that hospital in the event that there was a complication. The other provision um, required facilities that offer abortions to meet certain criteria for ambulatory surgical centers. And that went from everything from the width of hallways to the fact that you needed operating rooms with separate doors that you could go into and out of to the size of the room itself and a whole host of regulations that apply to facilities that provide surgery. Now, we'll get more into the ported or potential or perhaps non-existent medical benefits of those provisions, but um, first, the most immediate and most pronounced effect and what certainly caused this litigation was the curtailment of abortion access that these two provisions would cause across the state. I believe roughly half of the state's clinics were, were shuttered or perhaps more than that. That's right. Um, Roughly half of the state's clinics were shuttered in the immediate aftermath of the legislation, and there was a risk that it was going to wind up being as low as maybe seven facilities that would be in a position to offer abortion services in the state of Texas. Part of the reason for that is that it's very expensive to build a facility that satisfies the criteria for an ambulatory surgical center, millions of dollars, to either build or make improvements to an existing facility to meet those standards. One of the challenges with the admitting privileges requirement is that in order to get admitting privileges at a hospital, a doctor generally has to admit a certain number of patients. He he or she has to have a certain volume of patients at that hospital. And ironically, abortions are so safe that doctors who provide abortions almost never admit their patients into hospitals. And that was one of the reasons that it was very difficult for doctors to satisfy that requirement. So then... HB2 is challenged in, in district court in Texas, and I believe is, is overturned or deemed unconstitutional by the court there, but that ruling was reversed by the Fifth Circuit. Could you tell me what the Fifth Circuit's rationale was? That's right. The trial court found that these particular provisions were an undue burden and didn't have any rational relationship to legitimate health care considerations. The Fifth Circuit essentially deferred to the judgment of the legislature and said that the evidence didn't show that the legislative purpose was to place an obstacle in the path of women who were seeking access to abortion services and that these provisions seemed rationally related to health care and thought that the, that the trial court had overstepped its bounds in really looking at the independent evidence that was presented at trial rather than just looking at what the, what the legislature did and whether on its face it seemed to be legitimate or not. Obviously, that scrutiny wasn't quite what the Supreme Court would have applied, and we'll get to that in just a second. But before we get into the Supreme Court's opinion, could you lay out for me, you mentioned undue burden. I know that's a very important phrase from a previous case. Uh, I know there's obviously a couple of very important cases that sort of cast a shadow on, on this one, right? There, there are. I mean, obviously, the seminal case that established a woman's right to an abortion as a constitutional matter in the United States is Roe v. Wade. But the Casey decision in 1992 is really the decision that today guides how the court thinks about the right to an abortion. That was a decision that involved a bunch of provisions, including informed consent requirements and spousal notification provisions. And that case fractured the Supreme Court, resulting in a bunch of different opinions. There was no majority opinion in that case. But the result of that case was to find those restrictions were unconstitutional. And the decision is generally considered to be the decision of the court, which was authored by three judges, including Justice Kennedy, and I suspect we're going to wind up talking more about him, articulated the test for constitutionality as whether the state regulation imposed this undue burden on a woman's right to access abortion services. Now, in this opinion, there is a cohesive majority, and they say that HB2 was an undue burden. Could you walk me through the court's reasoning here? Absolutely. And part of what's really important about the court's decision here is in deciding that these regulations, the admitting privileges requirement and the surgical center requirement imposed an undue burden. They looked not only at the burdens, but also at the benefits. And they weighed those two together and found that the benefits were essentially pretextual, that there were not any real substantial benefits in terms of protecting women's health Uh, stemming from these particular requirements. But on the other hand, that the burden was substantial, particularly, for example, for women in more rural areas who might be 50 or 150 miles away from a major city, and the only clinics that were going to be able to remain open in Texas were 
clinics in major cities. And that particularly, the court goes out of its way to say that particularly for economically disadvantaged women, women in more rural areas and more vulnerable women, these restrictions were going to place an undue burden on their ability to get an abortion. There was also evidence that as a practical matter, the number of clinics that were going to be left simply weren't going to be able to handle the volume of services that had traditionally been required in Texas. Sure, yet there's only seven places left to go. Then I imagine that demand in those places would certainly skyrocket. Right, uh, and, and there was evidence that they simply didn't have the capacity. Sure. Okay, now we mentioned there's obviously five justices in this majority. Were you concerned at all that this case might end up with four justices on either side and then affirm the Fifth Circuit? That was the concern. I think everyone was concerned about that. There, there was really no question about how seven of the justices on the court were going to vote. <laughs> everyone, kind of, everyone kind of knew what the outcome was there. The question was, how was Justice Kennedy going to come out on this issue? Everyone else had made their positions clear. And the thing that's, that's so interesting about Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence, as I said, he had signed on to the opinion in Casey, but he was also one of the judges in the majority in Gonzalez, which was the partial birth abortion case, upholding the ban on partial birth abortion. So he had come out sort of both ways on abortion cases, and I think people were really not sure how he was going to view the facts of this case. And certainly we found out at one point you made earlier was that the Fifth Circuit was very deferential to the Texas legislature and essentially said, okay, well, they said this is their purpose, and so we're pretty much going to take them at their word. But Justice Breyer, I think, made a pretty important point, saying it's, it's really the court's purview to decide whether there's an undue burden or not, not necessarily the state legislature, especially whereas here there wasn't a ton of evidentiary bases, I think, provided by the, the state legislature for their, their law. That's exactly right. I think one of the most critical things about Justice Breyer's opinion is that he says essentially, we're not going to just take the state at its word. The fact that the state may say it's passing these requirements to protect women's health doesn't mean that the court should abdicate its responsibility to look and to see whether that actually makes sense. Um, and whether looking at the effects of the law, you can conclude that in fact, the purpose can't really be to protect women's health because these regulations are just not substantially advancing that interest. That, I think, is probably the most important thing to come out of this opinion, which is if states want to impose restrictions on abortion, they're actually going to have to provide evidence that the things that they are doing are going to matter in terms of protecting women's health. Obviously, the justices might have been skeptical, and I think a lot of people were skeptical of the true purpose of the legislature here, that perhaps they were really just trying to restrict abortion, not necessarily promote women's health. But um, it also seems like an upshot here is that the purpose sort of doesn't even necessarily matter, even if there was a good faith effort or design by the legislature to promote women's health. The fact was the effects did the opposite, or they infringed constitutional rights. That That's absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, the undue burden test focuses on effects. And obviously, you know, restrictions that had an explicit purpose simply to deter women from getting abortion services wouldn't pass muster. But, you know, in this day and age, probably no legislature is going to say that's sure. the intent. So I think what Justice Breyer was saying was, we're really, we're going to look at the effects. We're going to look at, you know, would these restrictions rationally advance women's health and is there evidence that they actually do that? And what are the negative effects? And are they in fact imposing this effect that is as a practical matter, meaning that women won't be able to access abortion services in the state or that their ability to do so will be meaningfully constrained? So now three justices dissent. Only one, though, Justice Thomas weighed in on whether he thought HB2 was constitutional. I believe the other two justices decided their dissent on res judicata grounds. That's exactly right. All three of the justices said that the Supreme Court essentially shouldn't have taken the case up um, because there was a prior case that hadn't resolved this issue, but that they said precluded the later this later litigation. Okay. And then Justice Thomas made one point that I thought was provocative, saying that the court regards abortion rights more favorably than other rights. Um, what do you make of his argument there? So he does. Justice Thomas is is not a fan of the various levels of scrutiny that the Supreme Court gives to different kinds of restrictions. His view is the test ought to be, is there some rational basis for the state action? And if there is, that's good enough. And he 
chastises the majority for applying something that he characterizes as strict scrutiny, as really looking too hard rather than deferring to the legislative judgment. And that's really what his complaint boils down to, that across the board you ought to just be deferring to the legislative judgment here. But I think what Justice Breyer recognizes is, one, that we're dealing with an important constitutional right and a vulnerable population, and we have to look at real-world effects and that the types of burdens that were being placed here on women, in fact, do substantially impair um, their access to abortion services. I think, you know, Justice Thomas was critical of the quality of evidence that was presented at the trial court and said that you would have needed to hear from, you know, actual women who would actually not been able to obtain these services and was critical of the sort of more statistical evidence that was presented. But I think Justice Breyer correctly observed that on the facts, there really was no legitimate question, but that this was going to have a very substantial effect. Do you think that this was a straightforward application of the doctrine that Casey put forth, or is there some refinement to the doctrine? Is there some additional constitutional gloss? So the thing that I think is most important about this opinion from a constitutional perspective is the balancing test. The fact that is, is one, that you don't simply defer to legislative judgment, but also, two, in looking at undue burden, you look at the combination of what are the obstacles that it places in the woman's way and what are the benefits of the regulation at issue, and that you have to consider both of those things in deciding whether the burden is undue. Not all burdens um, are impermissible. Something might be a burden, but it might also have a substantial benefit in terms of advancing women's health care. So I think the most important thing about this decision is in thinking about whether a burden is undue, you've got to look at the benefits as well as the costs. Okay. Then maybe one last one. It seems like expert reactions suggest this is a, a pretty significant win for pro-choice proponents. Uh, how profound do you view the impacts of this ruling? Incredibly important win. I think had this case gone the other way, it would have given states a roadmap to limit abortion services to such an extent that they would effectively be unavailable for a very substantial portion of the population. So I think this was incredibly important. Okay. Do you think that still in states like Texas, where there may be um, a majority of the folks in that state that are pro-life, that legislators will go kind of back to the drawing board and think of another way that they can try to legislate around this ruling? You know, I suspect that they may try, um, but I think the majority opinion makes it difficult because I think they're going to have to come up with restrictions that really do have a rational basis. And part of what Justice Breyer says in his majority opinion is that abortion is extraordinarily safe, that the rate of complication and fatality from abortions is very, very low. So I think it's going to be you know, hard to say that regulations are required because the procedure is so safe in the first place. Okay. Well, certainly a very fascinating ruling. Ms. Daryl Dury, we really appreciate you being on the podcast. My pleasure. time, that was Daryl and Dury of Dury Tangri. We'll shift gears now and move to the Ninth Circuit oral arguments heard in the cases against Uber to provide some insight on these cases and the important arbitration issues that they present. Let's now hear from Petter Batalden and Felix Shafir of Horvitz and Levy. We're welcoming in now two partners from the firm of Horvitz and Levy. We have Mr. Petter Batalden and Mr. Felix Shafir. Mr. Batalden is an expert in federal appeals, and he has co-authored the Rudder Group's Guide to Ninth Circuit Civil Appellate Practice. Mr. Shafir has argued cases before the California Supreme Court, and his areas of specialty include a class action defense. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. We're glad to join you, Brian. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. To set a bit of a context here, there are two class action suits brought against Uber that are up on appeal in the Ninth Circuit. And I think they're they're sort of separate, but certainly related. I th- think one of the cases involves claims against misclassification of workers and tip sharing. The other, I believe, challenges Uber's background check methods. But on appeal, I think they sort of both present the exact same question. When these cases were brought in federal court, I believe the judge there in the Northern District, Judge Edward Chen, denied Uber's motion to compel arbitration in in both of these cases. So is the question before the Ninth Circuit revolving around whether or not the, the motion to compel arbitration should have been granted? Yes, 
that is the key question. And maybe it would be helpful even to flesh out the background that you nicely articulated a little bit more, just to frame the context. So there are about five main class actions pending against Uber brought by Uber drivers in the Northern District of California. And there are now more than a dozen appeals that Uber and in some cases the drivers have initiated in the Ninth Circuit challenging various rulings of Judge Chen in the course of those class actions. Uh, some of those cases are in the process of settling or attempting to settle. Uh, not one of them has been tried to a jury or a judge or been reduced to a final judgment. So these are all interlocutory appeals uh, in one form or another. And the, the, the five main class actions can be divided into the two types that you mentioned. There are a uh, number of wage and hour class actions, which mostly revolve around the issue whether the workers or the drivers are independent contractors or employees. And across the class actions as a whole, they present the usual types of wage and hour claims that you see in this context. And then there are also class actions involving credit reporting claims. The allegations are that Uber obtained credit information, credit reporting information about drivers without notifying them or seeking their permission before doing so. And those are claims under both federal and state law. And what, what unites all of those class actions, all of those cases that we're talking about, is the argument by Uber that the claims are subject to arbitration clauses that are in an arbitration agreement that Uber has with almost all of its drivers. And it's those arbitration issues um, that were argued two weeks ago in the Ninth Circuit and that are uh, interesting to talk about. And um, there are lots of different permutations of these arbitration arguments, and we can get into some of those in detail. But they're, they're interesting both in terms of the Uber case itself and in terms of what they might portend for the future in other areas. And this is Felix. Just to, to build on that, so the, the two appeals that were actually argued um, involving Uber in, in June were, were both of those uh, classes of cases. One uh, was uh, the, the credit reporting cases, and another one is a sort of hybrid case that includes both claims involving the, the credit reports as well as wage and hour claims. And, and the key question in all of them, is, as, as both you and Petter mentioned, is whether or not the district court should have uh, granted a motion to compel arbitration. Uh, there was another appeal that was set to be argued at the same time. That's the O'Connor versus Uber case. Um, and that's a wage and hour class action, but that one's in the process of either uh, settling or trying to settle. Um, that involved a slightly different but related issue of whether or not uh, the district court had uh, essentially indicated that uh, the uh, arbitration provisions were improper communications with the class under the federal rules that govern class actions. So that the question there wasn't whether the trial court improperly denied the motion to compel arbitration, but it was whether the trial court improperly uh, refused to allow Uber to uh, enforce those those arbitration provisions under the sort of the notice rules that govern class actions in federal court. But that case did not get argued. Uh, the, the argument there was stayed uh, because of the pending efforts to try to settle that case. Okay, then before we jump into the arguments for the, the case that was argued, I believe the name plaintiff there was Muhammad. Could you tell me why, in, in Judge Chen's view, in the district court, compelling arbitration was improper? Sure. The judge, uh, Judge Chen, had several rationales as the case evolved. Uh, as we understand it, the, the judge's initial rationale was that the arbitration provisions were unconscionable, uh, that they were both procedurally unconscionable and substantively unconscionable uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but as, as time evolved and the uh, O'Connor wage and hour class action also began to get into the, into the nitty-gritty details of whether the judge there would allow Uber to enforce its arbitration provisions against the drivers who were putative class members in that case, uh, the judge sort of began expanding that rationale to uh, include uh, these PAGA representative action waivers and what those are are California Private Attorneys General Act uh, that allows um, essentially uh, individual employees or former employees uh, who were aggrieved by what they believe to be uh, alleged violations of California labor code statutes that normally would only be enforced by the, the California government um, allows them to sort of file a, a 
private bounty hunter type lawsuit uh, to recover those penalties. And if if they do manage to recover the penalties, a a large percentage of the recovery goes to the state, but the aggrieved attorneys who recovered it, uh, who managed to to get the penalties also get a a chunk of that as well. Um, And so in in the recent years, the California Supreme Court uh, held that uh, when an arbitration agreement includes a provision that prevents uh, a party from moving forward with a, a PAGA representative action, that type of PAGA representative action waiver um, violates California public policy and is not enforceable. And the California Supreme Court said that that's true, even if uh, the arbitration agreement is governed by federal arbitration law. And uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, recently decided to follow that California Supreme Court authority. And so Judge Chen concluded that because those uh, PAGA representative action waivers are unenforceable, it rendered the entire arbitration agreement unenforceable because, according to the district judge, uh, the PAGA representative action waivers couldn't be severed from the rest of the arbitration agreement. So, again, we began with the unconscionability rationale, but uh, as the case moved forward, the rationale evolved to include this key question about PAGA representative action waivers and whether or not they could be severed. At the oral argument, I, I take it the focus was perhaps principally around that specific issue, d- dealing with PAGA. What uh, what are the most significant issues pertaining to arbitration that are at play in these appeals? Well, there are several. There are the issues of unconscionability, whether the agreement, the arbitration agreement that Uber has uh, is procedurally unconscionable or substantively unconscionable. There's the question about whether the PAGA waiver is severable uh, from the rest of the arbitration agreement. Uh, There's even what might be viewed as a threshold argument that all of these questions about what should be submitted to arbitration or litigation, respectively, are decisions for an arbitrator to make in the first instance rather than a court to make. Uh, I'll call that just the delegation issue uh, for nomenclature purposes. Um, but that's an argument that there were, uh, there were some questions about that, and it's uh, conceivable that the panel could decide that all of these issues are not ones for a court to decide, but rather are for an arbitrator to decide. So there are there is a broad array of different issues on the table, and the, the panel has a number of different options in terms of how they can resolve the case. There's also one other argument that the class made as part of the appeals, and that was the argument that the uh, arbitration agreements are also not enforceable under federal labor law, but uh, the panel didn't ask any questions about that particular issue, and it didn't take up a a large component of the party's briefing, so it's unclear whether the court is really interested in in getting to that question. In this case, uh, that's in fact a a key question before the Ninth Circuit in a a different appeal that was argued back in uh, November of uh, 2015. So uh, they may very well be deciding that issue elsewhere and may, may choose not to get to that here. The panel, Brian, spent the bulk of the time at oral argument focused on the question of the PAGA waiver issue and also to some extent whether um, if that's invalid the the clause can be or those terms can be severed from the arbitration clause and one of the complicating features of the cases is that there's more than one arbitration agreement in issue. Uber had a 2013 arbitration agreement and then there's a revised 2014 arbitration agreement in which the district court itself was involved in the drafting and the revising since the class actions were pending at that point. Uh, and then although it, it may be beyond the scope of what the panel decides, there is in fact an even later, more recent 2015 arbitration agreement as well. And the language of these arbitration agreements is not identical. And so the panel in part was grappling with a very close reading of the provisions in question and the differences between the 2013 and the 2014 agreements and whether that uh, whether those differences might uh, alter the legal outcome. And that part of what makes these appeals so interesting is the question of how the Ninth Circuit will decide, you know, the sort of many different questions that are at issue here. If the court's decision really turns on, you know, the specific facts of, of these particular arbitration provisions and what the different agreements say about whether or not the PAGA representative action waiver can be severed, 
it may not have quite as much of an impact on other cases. But on the other hand, as Petter mentioned, the court really did talk about many of the other issues in play in this case, including procedural unconscionability. Uh, they spent some time on that, including uh, the question of whether or not um, the delegation issue should, whether or not you know these, these enforceability issues should be decided by an arbitrator. So if the court ends up deciding the case on those grounds, that may have uh, you know greater ramifications uh, in in other contexts for other class actions. Let's maybe get into that a little bit. Do you have any sense from the arguments how broadly the court might consider this issue, how much of the terrain that you gentlemen have laid out they they might intend to cover? I think our sense from the tenor of the questions at oral arguments, and I suppose we have to say this with the usual caveat that reading the tea leaves can sometimes be uh, lead to inaccurate predictions, but our, our sense was that the, the, the questions were were signaling general favoritism for Uber's positions. But it was a little difficult to tell exactly what ground the panel thought might be the better way to write an opinion with a result that that would favor Uber. Um, On the one hand, there there were some questions about the delegation issue, um, which would be in Uber's favor in the sense that they would be allowed to arbitrate all of these claims. Um, On the other hand, um, there were also lots of questions, as we mentioned, about the PAGA waiver and severability, and a, a number of fairly hostile questions for the plaintiff's counsel trying to explain why there should not be severance of the PAGA waiver if it were invalid. So depending on which path the panel took, the the decision might have greater or lesser impact and influence in, in the other cases in this area against other defendants and other players in the industry. But it, it did seem like the tenor of the questions was, was tilting in Uber's favor. If, if the Ninth Circuit were to decide the delegation issue, uh, that could have uh, potentially the greatest ramifications uh, for, for other cases. As Uber emphasized the argument, its arbitration provisions uh, spell out that the enforceability of the arbitration uh, provisions uh, should be decided by an arbitrator. But uh, the plaintiffs emphasize that there are other provisions in the licensing agreement and its arbitration components that talk about the court making certain decisions. And according to the plaintiffs, what that means is that the agreement is ambiguous as opposed to clear and unmistakable in its delegation of the issue to uh, an arbitrator. And the, the plaintiffs argue that if it's ambiguous and not clear and unmistakable, then a court has to decide the enforceability issues. Now, that argument has proven to have some weight uh, here in California. California appellate courts, there are several that have agreed with that view. But uh, other courts and other jurisdictions have approached the issue differently. They, you know, often they'll say that simply having a, a venue provision that gives the court um, an obligation to decide certain things doesn't mean that the otherwise clear and unmistakable delegation clause can't be enforced or is somehow ambiguous. The, the panel uh, seemed to appear to reject uh, the plaintiff's arguments in favor of why the delegation clause is ambiguous. And if the panel were to write an opinion along those lines, if they were to say that you know the the few references in the agreement to the court having make a, having to make certain decisions doesn't render the you know clear and unmistakable delegation provision any less clear and unmistakable, you know that that could send um, a real message to the district courts and perhaps to some California courts that perhaps they they should start approaching this delegation issue differently. The California Supreme Court has never uh, stepped in to decide this question. It may be a question that's governed by federal arbitration law in cases that are governed by the Federal Arbitration Act. Um, And if the Ninth Circuit were to write a uh, decision that that favored Uber on this delegation issue, you know, it may very well persuade other California courts of appeal to uh, tackle the issue differently. Um, that, that could end up creating a split of authority among California appellate courts that could go up to the California Supreme Court. Um, and frankly, if there ends up being a split of authority on this issue between the Ninth Circuit and California appellate courts, the U.S. Supreme Court may, uh, may one day elect to step in to, to definitively resolve the question. So if, if the court really does reach the delegation question, depending on how they, they phrase their opinion, that, that could have some of the most significant ramifications. If the court reaches some of the substantive unconscionability issues, that too could have some impact. Uh, there are some questions about whether uh, the way in which California courts before 
the Concepcion decision uh, treated provisions about the apportionment of arbitration costs, uh, treated carve-out provisions for certain types of claims, whether you know those could render the agreement unconscionable, um, whether those provisions could be severed, at what stage there were too many unconscionable provisions to sever so that unconscionability just permeated and tainted the entire agreement. But those are the kind of issues that we've seen uh, come into play uh, since Concepcion, with some courts saying that those pre-Concepcion California arbitration standards are swept away by Concepcion's interpretation of the Federal Arbitration Act. And if the Ninth Circuit weighs in on that, uh, if the Ninth Circuit, for example, were to agree with Uber that some of those California-centric laws don't survive Concepcion and Concepcion's progeny, that, that also could have ripple effects and could very well potentially work its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And, and part of all this is, you know, given, given the potential for the Ninth Circuit to decide issues that could implicate a split of authority, that there's a lot of uncertainty about what that could result in down the line, given, uh, given the death of Justice Scalia and just the general uncertainty that is fostered in whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court will be uh, sticking with uh, the approach it's had towards arbitration agreements over the last several years whether or not uh, they'll be perhaps taking a different tack at it, whether they may simply be reticent to take arbitration cases in the same number that they've been doing in the last few years, uh, whether the California courts, uh, which generally had a history of marching to their own drumbeat, a different drumbeat from the U.S. Supreme Court, whether they'll sort of revert to their approach before Concepcion to generally disfavor arbitration agreements, um, all of that, all of that may well be in play, and, and we may not know what the shape of California arbitration law will be in the Ninth Circuit or California courts for some time. I'd like to get a little bit more into that in just a moment, the potential looming nature of a potential U.S. Supreme Court review. But for a moment, could you tell me what the fact that the, the case that was not argued, the, the O'Connor case, the fact that it has a preliminary settlement petitioned for or, or pending, how does that affect the case that was argued, if at all, and, and how does it affect the O'Connor appeal itself, which I believe is, is still up in the, the Ninth Circuit? Yeah, those are good questions, Brian, and I'm not sure that there are entirely clear answers to all of them. The panel did ask a number of questions along those lines at the oral argument, and I think it might be helpful to try to separate out the O'Connor case on the one hand, the one that was not argued, from the Mohammed and Gillette cases on the other hand, which were argued. Um, to take the latter two that were argued first, in Mohammed and Gillette, uh, the panel asked, you know, do we, should we really be doing anything at all here? Is there even going to be a case for us to decide? You've told us that you're, you're trying to settle and have, have nearly reached an agreement. And the response from the parties, which seemed to satisfy the judges on the court, was that while a settlement is pending, while they have a memorandum of understanding in place, and would hope to obtain the approval of the district court eventually, that would not moot the appeal and it would not moot any of the arbitration issues that we're discussing today because the settlement has a contingent feature in which Uber will pay more or less depending on the outcome of the appeal. And there is some case law in the Ninth Circuit and also in other circuits indicating that where there is some money riding on the outcome of the appeal, uh, in a case in which damages are the relief sought by the plaintiffs, uh, that does, a settlement in, in that context will not moot the case. So I think it's unlikely that the, at least as we understand the current structure or effort to settle in Mohammed and Gillette, it's unlikely that, that the court will find that the efforts to settle have mooted the appeal. And so I think the panel will likely get to the merits of these issues. O'Connor, the other case, the one that wasn't argued, is a, is a more difficult case to analyze. Um, on the one hand, um, the, the district court, Judge Chen, has given some signals suggesting he's skeptical of the settlement that has been proposed and may have some doubts about whether it's appropriate. And so it's possible that the pending settlement in O'Connor may not actually be approved. Uh, perhaps the parties will ultimately renegotiate the terms uh, and, and it could be approved. But it's very much in doubt at the moment that the O'Connor settlement will actually go through. 
And if it doesn't go through, then, of course, the appeal should be allowed to proceed and and the panel will eventually hear oral argument as necessary and resolve that appeal. Um, On the other hand, even if the settlement were approved, there's still a possibility that the appeal could proceed because of the unique fact that the named plaintiff, O'Connor himself, has given indications that he would like to opt out and doesn't want to be part of this class settlement at all. Uh, in which case, in a very strange twist, it could be possible that the appeal might be allowed to persist. This is sort of virgin territory. I don't know that we have a lot of case law uh, on this unique situation where a named representative of a class wants to be relieved of of his status to pursue uh, a separate case while there's an appeal pending involving the class issues. So there's some uncertainty about the effect of the settlement there. And and the final piece of the puzzle is that with respect to the interplay between the proposed settlement in O'Connor and the settlement that the parties are trying to reach in Muhammad and Gillette, those are, are separate settlements, and the parties in Muhammad and Gillette have indicated that there's no overlap from their perspective. The O'Connors should do nothing to stop the court from reaching the substance of the issues in the Muhammad and Gillette cases. Uber represents uh, a part, uh, certainly a big part, of uh, the modern employment landscape where where services rendered in this particular style are are proliferating. So as we sort of hinted at, if the Ninth Circuit rules in favor of Uber in either or both of these cases, if both appeals continue, how outsized of an impact could we see with regard to, to other companies that have similar operations like Uber? I think, you know, part of it will depend on exactly what the court decides. Um, And as we mentioned before, you know, certain, you know, aspects of the case, if the Ninth Circuit reaches them, could have, you know, far-reaching ramifications, you know, even beyond the context of of companies that may resemble Uber. Um, And uh, with respect to, you know, companies that do resemble Uber, even if the court just reaches the question of whether or not these PAGA representative actions are severable, uh, these waivers are severable, whether or not uh, the the representative action waivers um, uh, would defeat the enforceability of the agreement, whether the delegation clause is clear and unmistakable. uh, All of that might end up proving to be a template for how other companies end up approaching how they want to um, write their arbitration provisions. If you have a Ninth Circuit decision that says that certain types of, of language uh, you know, render the POG representative waiver that, that might be unenforceable, um, severable, or, or that the delegation clause is clear and unmistakable, notwithstanding plaintiff's arguments to the contrary, other companies might be tempted to say, well, hey, we have approval from a court for this type of language. Why don't we use this as a blueprint uh, for what we're doing in the future? So at a very minimum, you may have companies you know, that resemble Uber or that have sort of similar, uh, similar models, that may, perhaps even companies outside that model uh, who might use that, that decision as a template for what they want their arbitration provisions to say. Maybe setting aside for a second the, the issue of, of severability with regard to PAGA waivers, just the... The fact that the California Supreme Court has said in, in the Iskanian decision that that question of whether PAGA representative waivers are enforceable or not certainly still stands as good law in California. As you, you mentioned, it's been recognized by the Ninth Circuit that PAGA representative waivers are unenforceable. What do you think the likelihood could be that that specific question is reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court? And as you hinted to a bit, does the death of Justice Scalia impact how a court, um, how the court might address that question and whether or not they would want to grapple with it at all. Well, that is a, that is a very good question and a very timely one. Um, the Ninth Circuit decisions that elected to follow this California Supreme Court rule um, are uh, sort of potentially within the time frame for the, the defense there filing a cert petition. And uh, in, uh, in several of those cases, the deadline to file a cert petition is just around the corner on July 5th. Um, and so we will soon find out if the employers there want to challenge the Ninth Circuit's decision, uh, which could mean that by the time of the court's conference, when it returns back after the summer break, uh, we may know the U.S. Supreme Court is uh, backing away from uh, its previous close scrutiny of uh, California's arbitration rules, uh, including how they've been implemented by the Ninth Circuit, uh, whether they, they want to take um, some time and step away from weighing in on those California issues until they, they have a new justice on the court, until they have a, a better sense of, of what their approach 
to arbitration law will be, whether it will be the similar approach that they've had before, whether they're going to take a different tack. Um, so I, I think all of that is very much in play. Um, if one of the employers were to file a cert petition, I think there is a chance the U.S. Supreme Court could grant uh, a cert petition. Uh, but I think that with Justice Scalia's death, that chance has become somewhat more remote. At the very least, we might see a situation, as we did in Concepcion, where if the court is interested in that issue, it may wait several years uh, until it decides to come back to this question. In Concepcion, you may remember there was the question of whether or not the, the class action waiver in the arbitration agreement uh, was enforceable uh, from a California rule that dated back to, uh, I think it was 2005. Uh, and it took years of cert petitions to get that question in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. I think that, that there are many who would have thought by the time that the court granted certiorari in Concepcion that the court had no interest in that, in that issue. And it all it turned out was that the court was biding its time trying to decide you know, whether it wanted to take up that case. And we could see the same thing here. We, this may be a transitional year, uh, one where there's just too much uncertainty with Justice Scalia's death, with the presidential election, with everything really up in the air. They, even, even if a cert petition is filed, they may choose to hold off for some time. That, that may not necessarily be a, a comment on whether they end up taking, the, taking up the issue a couple years down the road. So I wouldn't be surprised, even if, even if cert wasn't granted on this issue this year, um, if if employers didn't keep filing cert petitions on this issue over time and uh, waiting to see if the U.S. Supreme Court chooses to step in. But uh, I, I do think all of this shows that um, this is really a, a, a you know, constantly evolving area of the law. You, you, you see this constantly evolving landscape about pocket representative action waivers. Now you see the sort of evolving landscape of whether or not uh, courts agree that federal labor law uh, precludes the enforcement of class action waivers in arbitration agreements, the very same class action waivers that Concepcion said were enforceable. Um, you, you see you know, the, the California Supreme Court holding that federal labor law doesn't prevent the enforceability of those class action waivers. Uh, and then you recently see the Seventh Circuit reaching a very different decision, uh, saying that federal labor law does preclude the enforcement of uh, class action waivers, where it's a mandatory uh, arbitration agreement in the employment context, one that doesn't allow employees to opt out, and one where it completely forecloses uh, the employees from uh, pursuing, whether it's PAGA representative actions or, or class action proceedings in any form, whether arbitration or employment. So you suddenly have a split of authority on this, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if the employer there files a cert petition, and again, how the uncertainty generated by Justice Scalia's death in a presidential year could impact that. So I, in some ways, arbitration law seems to be evolving every day, um, and it's, it's difficult to answer what it will look like you know, in the near future. And I would add to that, Brian, that I think the volatility that Felix has just described, which is, you know, probably makes arbitration law among the most volatile areas of the law that we have today, it makes the decision in a case like the Uber appeals um, potentially very important if if the court actually blesses particular language or says that particular language will withstand scrutiny. Because in, in a volatile environment where you have state courts, federal courts, different federal agencies, all jockeying for a position to make their views known and heard, uh, any safe port in a storm is welcome. And a decision from a, a court like the Ninth Circuit endorsing particular language is likely to be welcomed and, and followed, uh, if not adopted, by, by businesses. I think one question that will be interesting to see is, you know, how any Ninth Circuit decision in this case may impact Judge Chen's uh, view of the proposed settlements in any of these cases as, as they come before him. Uh, Judge, to our knowledge, at least as of yesterday, Judge Chen hadn't ruled on the motion for preliminary settlement approval in the O'Connor case. He may very well have other proposed settlements in front of him in the near future, perhaps even in Mohammed and Gillette. And uh, given all this uncertainty, I wonder uh, if he will be more accepting of plaintiff's counsel's argument that given the amount of uncertainty in this area of the law, the lack of clarity, that there's too much risk to move forward and that the proposed settlement really makes more sense than moving forward with the lawsuit. Um, Judge Chen may reject that, um, but perhaps the, 
the atmosphere that's that's come about in the last couple months, maybe that could prompt him to bless the settlement. Okay, well, it certainly seems like an area of law where some clarity might be useful. We'll see how much the Ninth Circuit provides relatively soon. I think we'll leave it there for now. Petter Batalden and Felix Shafir of Horvitz and Levy, thanks very much, gentlemen, for being on the program. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our program for July 1st, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity once more to thank all of my guests, Professor Eileen Boris from UCSB, Daryl and Dury of Dury Tengri, and Petter Batalden and Felix Shafir of Horvitz and Levy. And of course, I'd also like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated. I'd like to remind you also that CLE credit is available for your having listened. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Again, I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week and a fantastic 4th of July. Mm-hmm.